Welcome to Beyond the Benchmark, EFG's weekly podcast. My name is Joaquin Tull. I'm an economist at uh, EFG here in London. And today I'm going to be covering for, for Moss, uh, who is uh, away during, during this week. And we're going to have a chat uh, today about um, energy and the transition to renewable sources. So in the first half of this year, uh, electricity markets continue to experience uh, very high prices, particularly in Europe, reflecting um, deep uncertainties uh, over both uh, fossil fuel supplies and also the, the economic outlook. Uh, Russia's invasion of uh, Ukraine was a key catalyst for this and, and raised questions over the impact of high energy prices, um, its spillover effect on, on global inflation and the overall sustainability of some of these uh, energy markets. So in Europe and in the UK, the situation prompted uh, governments to reassess their current policies and strengthen their efforts towards uh, clean energy transition and reduce the dependency on uh, fuel imports. Um, but in the short term, uh, it also resulted in a, in a partial return to coal um, and some of the other um, energy sources that have in the past been labeled as, uh, as dirty or as, 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 as non-renewable. Um, driven by this sharp increase in, in the oil price. So today I am joined by Paul Temperton, who um, most of you might mm, uh, remember from uh, our quarterly um, editions of, of this podcast, uh, and who is also a friend of the house now, um, and who uh, will help me to try to disentangle this, this main issue. Paul, welcome. Nice to be here. Thank you. Great. So, if you um, just as a start um, in the in the recently uh, in the recent quarterly Insight publication, uh, you wrote on uh, energy security and how uh, it is now part of the political agenda. Why, why don't we start with that and let's just refresh what the situation is at the moment? Well, yes, Europe and especially is relying on imports of gas. We hear that story almost every day from Russia, and that makes us feel sort of insecure because we're not sure whether the taps are going to be turned off or what the price is going to be for the supplies that do come through. And of course that comes along at the same time as the green transition to net zero in 2050 and similar sort of objectives that many European countries have. So it's a balancing act, trying to be secure, or be green, uh, and also do it without letting prices get out of control because inflation is now the new problem. That's right. But then when we look at, at world energy production, we, we still have a very high percentage come for, from fossil fuels, um, mostly coming from um, uh, from Asia, let's say, is probably the, 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 the largest culprit here. Um, so it's, it's not easy. It's not something uh, just talking about the transition to renewable sources when not everyone is maybe on the same page. No, 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 no. And if you look at, and we've had some recent numbers, BP do their statistical review of world energy, the IA does surveys of sort of world energy use and so on. And the numbers are all really big. So I discovered a measure which would make this sort of slightly easier to understand. Uh, the world used fi uses 595 exajoules of energy. And an exajoule, you might say, what's that? <laughs> uh, an exajoule is, is 10 to the power 18. So 595 with 18 zeros on the end of it. Okay, now does that make very much sense? Well, no, not really. We can convert it into terawatt hours. People will know about kilowatt hours, especially in the UK, because one kilowatt hour is a one unit of electricity. 
And so 595 exajoules converts into 165 trillion kilowatt hours. Mm-hmm. Gosh, that's still quite a lot of number. That's still quite a big sort of number. But your question was about the proportion and how much of that comes from fossil fuels. The answer is still over 80% comes mm-hmm. from uh, coal, oil and gas. So we use a lot of energy uh, and that will go up over time. Um, especially as emerging economies become more developed economies, mm-hmm. uh, it's very, very unlikely that we'll see overall energy demand for the world uh, decline. And most of the IEA scenarios, apart from the very ambitious one, see that steadily increasing over the next 30 years. So more energy needed at the same time as we're trying to change the mix at low prices. Gosh, hard. That is hard. Yeah, yeah, it's very hard. So in a world where we still depend so much on on coal and and oil, uh, this just means more more CO two, more carbon dioxide into the into the economy. More CO two, or we collect that, abate the sort of CO two emissions, or we move to zero or very low CO2 sources, which is why there's so much emphasis on things like solar power and wind power, and to a lesser extent, things like hydro and biomass and so on. So the issue here is, I think, how quickly can they be scaled up and what's what's needed? How much do we need to spend to do that? And the, the, the answer, you don't use exajoules to measure that, but you measure trillions of dollars. Mm-hmm. And I think probably the most convincing answer is the one that Mark Carney gave recently at the uh, as a Glasgow summit. And that's about two to two and a half trillion a year. And we're not spending anywhere near as much as is needed. Just to bring that down in scale, there's a recently a report on the UK. Uh, we're, we're spending about 10 billion a year and we need to spend about 50 billion. So about five times what we are spending. And in many ways, the UK is a leader in that. You know, we're... It's hard to go around the UK coastline without seeing a great big wind turbine offshore. Uh, We've spent a lot already. There is a lot of investment going on. But that needs to be scaled up a long way. And Mm -hmm. even so, that's only part of uh, the requirement. We talk about offshore wind, for example, meeting half of our electricity requirements in 20 years' time or whatever. But electricity is only 15% of energy consumption, relatively small amount. I mean, um, still aren't that many electric cars and industrial processes uh, use oil and gas and lesser extent coal. So everything needs electrifying at the same time as we're generating new sources of renewable electricity. So yeah, it's a big, big task. Big task. But but you were saying the UK is one of the the ones leading here. It's one of the, the, the few countries that that can actually aim to reach that net zero by 2050. Yeah, I mean, the UK doesn't lead in many things at the moment, but yeah, it is one of the things we do lead in. I mean, we've got a lot of offshore wind capacity. But, you know, just to put that, put another number on that, that currently amounts to about 11 gigawatts. We want to get to about 50 gigawatts. Um, and that's over a long period of time, you know, so mm-hmm. right, until 2040. Um, and that's small in the global scale of things. So, yeah. So, what what alternatives do we have? So, what can we um, start thinking of new en- energy sources? Because the, the UK has um, quite a lot of capacity for hydropower, but only 
it's very little that comes from from there. I think it's just around less than two percent of of the UK electricity comes from hydropower. So wind is is uh, is one of the the large ones you said. Solar is another option. It's not that we have a lot of sun in this country. We don't have a lot um, of sun now. But <laughs> what are the what are the options that we have here? What what well, the other the other one that attracts a lot of attention in the area of the UK I come from, which is uh, around South Yorkshire, is biomass because the UK has one of the biggest biomass uh, plants in the in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's Drac Power Station. Uh, there are bound to be some questions about quite how green that is, because the biomass that is burnt comes from British Columbia and Tennessee, comes from America, comes all the way out Atlantic, great tankers, mm-hmm. comes into Immingham, gets on a train, and then is burnt in Drax Power Station. Um, yes, it's carbon zero in the sense that uh, biomass, essentially wood chippings, mm-hmm. um, what you're doing is you're burning something which has stored the carbon in the first place. So over its lifetime, it's, um, it's zero carbon. But I don't, scaling that up to meet all the UK's demands isn't, isn't really all that reasonable. I, I, I think we just have to so take things that are already tested and that looks okay. And, you know, returning to wind, the IEA did this uh, potential for offshore wind for the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's massive. I mean, it could meet 10 times Europe's electricity demands, for example, if we just had all along the coastline of Europe sort of loads and loads of wind turbines. But that's a huge investment sort of process. Mm-hmm. Uh, requires a lot of money, and it requires a lot of time. Um, there's recently an estimate. What, what do you need to get to the UK's offshore wind targets? The answer is you need to install one offshore wind turbine every day for the next 12 years. Wow, that's a lot. Now, you do put up a wind turbine offshore in a day. It takes a day. I checked. I mean, it's not a job I'd fancy doing, but, you know, you have a team of people and it takes a day. But that has to carry on for 12 years, and that's just to meet our current demands. And then if you add in electricity to meet new demands, for example, uh, production of hydrogen used in industrial processes or steel making for example that's a great big chunk on top of that it's almost as much again so we're going to be putting up an offshore wind turbine every day for the next 30 years so if you you want something with job security (laughs) offshore wind turbine erector uh, could be a good job to have You're keen if you think you have a change of career. Not, uh, not no, really. no, no, that's, that's not my my my, my line. <laughs> it's not your but, line. No, but it's 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 interesting what what you say about the the, the possibility for for wind. There's been a lot of uh, of talk uh, at the moment over whether we should incentivize, uh, know, from a tax point of view, companies that start to, to do that, um, or should we actually start? using or using revenue from from uh, from this type of taxing of of, of carbon emissions um, to finance the technology from from other sources such as hydrogen for example it's a it's a really good point isn't it you know taxes and subsidies in this area but i think it's a it's a bit of a minefield frankly mm. um i mean i just see that the imf's latest report says we we do need a 75 dollar tax per tonne on CO2 emissions. And the global average is around three or four at the moment, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but we know that whenever we try and put a tax on CO2 emissions, or anything that's green, cause all sorts of difficulties. I mean, we've got the 
prime ministerial debates in the UK at the moment, and this trust, for example, says that she'd suspend the green levy. Mm-hmm. Uh, in France, we heard about the you know protests with the gilets jaunes a few years mm-hmm. back. So when Macron tried to introduce a similar sort of green levy, I think they're just very, very hard to introduce on the tax side, and yeah. equally subsidies. The UK has played with subsidies over the over the years for various reasons, decided that they were not sustainable and then ran them down and, and didn't use them any longer. Mm-hmm. But the good, th- the good thing you could say from the subsidies is they got the industry to reasonable scale. And so now we're seeing very, very sharply falling costs of solar and wind, especially solar, yes, um, which is cheaper than fossil fuels. And that, I think that's the area where I feel most optimistic about all of this. Mm-hmm. We could get to that tipping point where things can really be scaled up quite quickly and they're cheap and they don't rely on subsidies. Yeah, so uh, the, the, the reduction in the cost of, of production of, of, of solar energy, that, that could potentially be a, a, a turning point, let's say, for, for this industry. It could be a turning point. And I, I've, I've always like the work of Jeremy Rifkin in his book, The Zero Marginal Cost Society. I mean, this is a vision of the future where every building has a solar panel on it and we have cheap forms of communication everywhere with massive Wi-Fi and broadband and so on. Uh, not, n- nothing costs very much. Hey, that would solve the inflation problem, wouldn't it? I mean, um, he might be right eventually. It'd take a long time to get there. But yeah, we could get to that zero marginal cost situation. Some people would say in solar, we're almost there anyway. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of the tenders recently have been incredibly low. I mean, cents per kilowatt hour of generation. Yeah. Then the other one I wanted to, to ask you is uh, what we were just saying about hydrogen. So we've been hearing a lot about hydrogen, about the different colors of hydrogen. Mm-hmm. Um, but... There has its pros and cons, right? It's, it's, it's cheap, but it's maybe a bit more dangerous and maybe it's not that green in, in all of its forms, right? Well, green hydrogen, which is the one formed using uh, renewable electricity, energy from renewable sources, needs a lot of electricity mm-hmm. um, for, the, to, for the electrolysis process. And, you know, you mentioned hydrogen. The first thing people say is, oh, well, well, well my car explode if I have I hydrogen in it. Or you tell people that their gas boiler is going to be replaced with a hydrogen one. Well, hey, hydrogen, that sounds very dangerous. So mm-hmm. there are other security features associated with that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, some obstacles to overcome. Technology is not completely untested, but it's in quite an early stage. Right. I'm not sure that there's a hydrogen blast furnace yet. I, re- I, could, <laughs> I may be corrected on that. Um, uh, but, you know, decarbonization of steel production, for example, mm-hmm. um, would itself have huge energy demands. Okay, so on one side... electricity demands. We have this green uh, hydrogen, which is sustainable storable more versatile but it's also has high cost it has high energy consumption in its uh, production process and it causes some safety issues absolutely so maybe it's too early stage to try to rely on 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 green hydrogen well maybe the safety issues though they remind me of do you remember when the the dream was it the dreamliner when that came along and everyone thought i'm not going on dreamliner because the batteries explode mid-flight and all and then the ethiopian airlines won at heathrow shut heathrow down for 
two days or whatever. It, it strikes me it's a bit like that, you know, mm-hmm. new technology with some potential safety concerns. It, it, it's an initial problem, and I'm sure it'll be overcome. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I know we talked about those problems with electric cars in the past as well. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Then we have pink hydrogen use uh, is produced using nuclear power but nuclear power um, has a lot of <laughs> negative uh, connotations about apart sure. from for, for the european union it doesn't seem to be um, well, well yes i mean um, you know gas and nuclear as transition fuels i think a lot of people have a hard time sort of accepting that they sh- should be there in the first place and the transition process should be a short one but it's quite unrealistic to think that the use of those fuels will be phased out quickly. I mean, more likely they're around for 30, 40, 50 years. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the UK has even talked about scaling up, so, you know, mini nuclear production and so on. So, right. Yeah. And then finally, the one that I, I seem to be hearing a little bit more about it in, in Latin America, which is the blue hydrogen, which is the one... Um, which uses this uh, carbon capture storage technology uh, so that all of this carbon dioxide does not get released into the um, into the atmosphere. So uh, the storage is a bit more costly and it has more logistical issues, but it seems to be um, something that at least countries in Latin America and the small ones are starting to get more in depth with absolutely and you have that along uh, Drax that I talked about earlier with the, the biomass plant that has a carbon capture facility as well right. I, I believe it's not working I went to visit a couple of years ago and it was like a small hole in the side of a building and it was an experimental project um, it, it's in very much the initial stages so mm-hmm. um Um, apparently, apparently in South Yorkshire, sorry, talking about my home area too much here, when the coal mines closed down in the 1980s with the Margaret Thatcher sort of shutting down domestic production, the idea was then that the coal mines would be used as a carbon capture uh, facility and you would pump the sort of carbon underground. Right. Um, it never worked. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And here we are 40 years later sort of thinking whether it might work. So I just think where we are now is we've got to have something that we know will work and quite quickly that can be scaled up. Right. And so I just keep coming back to solar and wind, wind. the ones that we know are working. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's, that's interesting because uh, it is part of the uh, main switch for, for some of the... the electricity generation in in Latin America as I was just saying like for example in uh, in countries such as Costa Rica uh, such as Paraguay such as Uruguay um, which they have completely decarbonized their um, electricity generation um, wind now represents between 40 and 50 percent of their the whole matrix for 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 energy um, and this was Um, just as a, as, a, as a figure here, it used to represent less than 1% in 2013. So it's been a massive change, um, mostly through this public-private sort of initiatives um, that uh, allow, the, let's say, private companies to actually uh, benefit from the need from these countries and, and, and the lack of infrastructure that already exists. So yeah. in a way, we expect Europe to to follow through in some of, in some of those things and um, and you 
kind of ask why hasn't this happened yet? Yeah, well, I think it's I think it's great that we've come to Latin America setting an example for Western economies. I mean, what what a what a turnaround that is, Joaquin. What do you think there? You know, the the Costa Rica and Paraguayan model for European energy production. Yeah, it's uh, good. Could catch on. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, it, it's the the scale of the countries as well, the, the size of these countries. But if you look at the continent as a whole, you have that over fifty percent of the of the electricity generation in the whole continent um, comes from renewable sources, and right. only thirty five percent of the electricity in the world, the median, as I put for the world, is from uh, from from these sources. So, uh, yeah, it's it's actually leading the way. Well, I think also on biodiversity. I mean, Costa Rica is yes. an example on biodiversity as well. is a great example for the rest of the world. So we should all be more Costa Rican in our outlook, uh, you know. But from, a, from an investor point of view, then yeah. we look at uh, countries that, um, that need investment, that we, we were talking over the podcast and, and the quarterly one about the, um, the Brookfield Fund. Yep. Um, and how much money has actually raised for, for green infrastructure. Um, from, a, from an investor point of view, then this could be interesting, uh, interesting possibilities. We've seen uh, more than 35 plans uh, to develop low-carbon hydrogen across uh, LATAM. Chile leading, leading the way um, here. The Ministry of Energy and Mining in Brazil also declaring hydrogen a, a high priority for area of, uh, of development. Like These are all policies that are probably not specific to one particular politician or party, but there are right. more policies that, that, that transcend this and that go towards um, just bringing the cost down. Now now Europe realized that they need to bring the cost down all uh, of a sudden. Yeah, and I mean, I'm, I think here it's interesting that even Solvency 2 has been mentioned in the prime ministerial debates. I mean, I'm not sure many people know what Solvency 2 is all about. But of course, that is allowing sort of insurance companies and pension funds to invest in very, very long-term assets. Brookfield, for example, like we mentioned earlier, is investing all the renewable energy projects globally. Mm -hmm. um, oh, it's a private institution. Um, but here, restrictions on the way in which insurance companies in particular can invest um, yes. stop them investing in projects that might have only a payback in, uh, you know, over a period of, well, a century mm -hmm. is what we're really talking about for some things. I mean, they'll be in place and they'll be generating electricity or power for a very long period of time. Um, and the argument against allowing funds to do that is, well, they're looking after people who might face retirement in a few years' time. And of course, that project might not have any payback over that period. In fact, it's probably mm -hmm. a payout. Um, that's very, very hard to get supposedly long-term investing institutions to invest in these things. Yes. Um, so it has to be done either by far-sighted governments or by um, private mm -hmm. sort of organisations like Brookfield, for example. And that's why uh, it, is, it becomes so important. And it's not a, a coincidence that some of these countries that are leading the way are the ones that have better conditions for foreign investments to, or at least... Uh, it's easier to do business with some of these countries. Yep. Um, we're not talking about the the Venezuelas or the Argentinas um, of uh, of the region. We're talking about countries that have solid fundamentals that are open to the world, that they offer um, uh, strength in institutions and, and, and in uh, private contracts for this. Strengthening institutions or strong governments, and of course you've got that, well, 
strongman politician is well known in South America, Latin America. <laughs> not recently. And maybe not, <laughs> sometimes in a good way, sometimes not sometimes in such a good not. way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, because Costa Rica is a, is a good example of that. Yeah. Uh, that's, that, that, that's definitely, that's definitely a way. Chile probably has been a bit more controversial recently on the political side, but uh, it's also a country that is renowned for um, uh, keeping you know, clear rules for investors. And, and maintaining the conditions for, 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 for that. Maybe okay. Mexico is not the, the, the best example there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like it, it's, it's uh, for once it's good to see that some of these conditions are, are starting to, to, to come out. And of course, now there's more talk about uh, sustainable linked bonds that are starting to come out in, um, uh, in the market. I think Luxembourg already has one of these, um, uh, issue one of, one of these bonds now, um, you said Uruguay might be doing one. Uruguay might be doing one. Yeah. Yes, uh, I had the 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 pleasure of, of speaking with the president about this uh, fairly recently. And I, I and like speaking to presidents myself. <laughs> I mean, it's a good thing to do. Yeah. But uh, he mentioned that yeah, Uruguay wants to issue a, a sustainable link bond where the the payment of these coupons will be tied to uh, key performance indicators, mostly like em- emissions and and. Um, uh, and this type of uh, of metrics, um, and therefore, if the country ends up um, meeting the, some of the target goals, then the the coupon comes comes down. Yeah. Uh, and if they actually fail on this on on their objectives, then the coupon comes up. So it kind of aligns the interest um, to to meeting some of these goals. Uh, and from an investment point of view, it also it's a way to contribute to force. A government to, of course, you're, you're making a bit of a of a return there, but um, it forces them to uh, to meet some of the some of these, uh, yeah. these specific goals. So, yeah, it, it could and be also an for the investor. I mean, it's just the sort of thing that they would like. Many investors would like to invest in, yes. with all the ESG considerations. Correct, exactly. So it kind of is is a race to see who who does this first in the region. Um, the key thing here is aligning the the government and the Ministry of Finance and the Ministry of uh, of Industry and and uh, um, in order to how they're gonna measure this. Yeah, and that is a big discussion of how are we gonna uh, uh, keep um, something that is compliant with all of these uh, metrics, but it's also is audited and who's gonna audit this? Who's gonna make sure that they're not um, tricking the system. It's obviously a concern. Yeah, and that's we, we've heard a lot, and we, there's been recent articles as well that have come out over how difficult it is sometimes to 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 measure these uh, these, in, these initiatives. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, when I look at the numbers in, for example, yeah, IEA or BPB's on or BP's work on these are the co2 emissions for this country in this year i think mm, okay um, how certain can you be about those uh country by country it's very hard but then of course we do have object we have objective measurements from mona Loa, the famous one in hawaii the observatory which is mm-hmm. atmospheric co2 emission me- measures from 1958 i think it is um so although country by country you might not have mm, quite the right number Globally, we know that CO2 concentrations are going up. There's really no doubt about that. Do you think that this, uh, this model or this, this type of securities could be uh, in the future issued by large countries like G7 economies to try to 
to do that? Do you see any any issues for that? I th- I think so. Uh, I think some wariness about these new sort of types of instruments is warranted. I mean, uh, Rishi Sunak, our former chancellor, sort of talked about sort of bonds linked to cryptocurrencies and stable coins, and that didn't go very far. Probably we should be relieved it didn't. So, I mean, you know, financial innovations like that, there's a bit of a yeah. you know, wariness to start with. But I think, no, I think it's generally a good idea. Yeah. Uh, I think the trouble with linking it to any individual country is what was that saying about the dollar? The the dollars are currency, but your problem. I think that applies with CO two. I mean, these are our CO two emissions, for example. You know, if you're in a country in Asia, mm-hmm. but they're a global problem. Uh, that seems to be the world we're living in. I mean, we'll make great progress in Europe, and we already have made good progress in reducing CO two emissions. But it's a global issue. Mm-hmm. So then. What are the solutions? What are the solutions? <laughs> what are the solutions? <laughs> well, I don't know. I try and sum it up as three T's. <laughs> okay. <laughs> taxes, or technology, or trees. Um, taxes, because you can have a carbon tax, the $75 per tonne of CO2, the IMF recommends for the developed countries. Oh, I just think it's so hard to get there. We'll, ma- we'll try and get towards it, but I think just taxing your way out of this problem is difficult. Technology. So it's, it's going to be it's going to be messy to to implement. It's going to be hard this, to implement, this. especially in this this world. It's very hard to implement. We might get there, and some countries have. I mean, mm-hmm. carbon tax in Sweden is very high, but Sweden is a special case. I think uh, it's going to be very very difficult. To so it requires that. more of a coordination of of countries first before we we can actually start thinking. Because one country doing it won't make a won't make a difference. And you need you need the tax arguably in the you know. Worst countries, if you can call them worst in that right. respect. Yeah. Technology, I think, is the exciting one. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about that. I mean, it's wind and solar. And and then the new technology for electrolysis and carb, uh, uh, carbon capture and hydrogen generation and all of that. I think that's very, very exciting. And I think we make a lot, a lot of progress. Uh, trees people have forgotten about, I think. I don't know why they've forgotten about them. But, you know, the Trillion Tree Project. There we are. It's got four T's in this now. So it's mm-hmm. Tacnus... Ta- Taxes, technology, trees, and, and trillion trees. Um, because they can absorb a lot of carbon dioxide. So that's your carbon sink as well as a straightforward carbon capture. Um, I think the trouble is, you know, we, we say that CO2 emissions might be hard to measure, but capture by trees is also pretty hard to measure as well. And, you know, over what period do you do it? And over the entire lifespan and so on. Um, I think they're the three solutions. I'd, I'd go for the middle one. The technology is the one that's going to get us out of this mess. Yeah. Well, it's not surprising that the countries that have made more progress into into these are all countries that have... Um, they needed to solve a problem. Yeah. They needed to reduce their dependency of oil or they needed to, to um, invest in a way that was more, you know, created less dependency of... of of other countries, um, so countries that need, that had a particular issue and they needed to to reduce the volatility to 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 get there. We're getting to that moment we in are. Europe. Yeah, like, we are. I think the, yeah, the, yeah. the Russian invasion of Ukraine was maybe one of those moments. Yeah. And all the sanctions into into Russian oil created this issue of we need to reduce dependency of of, of this. So maybe that could be that trigger point of. You need a crisis to get things changed. Yes. I mean, and I think that, you know, people have drawn a parallel between the 
Greek crisis and, you know, the need for reform in Greece and the German crisis now with the dependence on Russian gas. You need a crisis to trigger change. So it's more uh, behavioral economics type behavioral of thing. Behavioral economics, yeah, exactly. We need a crisis. We need a crisis. And we've got one. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we need a, a, a catalyst for, for some of this, and maybe this, this could be, uh, as a, on a positive note, this could be the, 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 the moment when we make that change. Let's call it a catalyst, not a crisis. It sounds better. I like that. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Great. Okay. Great, Paul. Thank you very much it's for for this. Uh, it's been very very interesting. There's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of um, let's say spillover in, into other other sectors and, and the potential for for us to profit from this. Of course, it's it's an area that it's unexplored. It's not entirely um, it's not easy to invest in, and and there, there's a lot of information out there. So we need to be very very selective, very careful where we get into. But definitely something that's going to remain. Um, in our in our path great thank you very much and thank you all of you for for listening today uh most will be back next week uh so in the meantime if you have any questions you can email it to us um and we will will come back to you thank you very much